This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by the Kauffman Foundation, investing in educators and lifting up the Kansas City region, which is dedicated to learning together to improve educational and economic success. Learn more at Kauffman.org. Discipline. Our teachers say their schools are starting to get it right. Now, Betsy DeVos is getting involved. Plus, the old tensions between charter schools and district schools back in the headlines after a charter school strike in Chicago. And how what month your kids are born in affects whether they get diagnosed with ADHD. Those topics plus kids these days on this episode of the No Wrong Answers podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I used to be in the classroom as an English teacher. Now I'm behind the mic as a radio journalist. I'm joined, as always, by a group of hardworking teachers who have a lot on their minds and are ready to talk. So let's introduce them here in the studio in Kansas City. Greg Brenner for a second week in a row. Yeah, thanks for having me. What do you teach? High school social studies. And joining us, it's been a while, Lynn Shipley. What do you teach? Well, I taught... um computers in the 7th and 8th grade. Now I'm an instructional coach. And welcome back, by the way. Thank it's good you to see much. you. And joining us from Chicago, Kevin Vanderporten. What do you teach? I teach 10th grade U.S. history. So we have Greg and Lynn here in Kansas City, Kevin in Chicago. If Betsy DeVos makes a sound and no teachers are listening, does it make a difference? Well, it could. For some students, the Washington Post reports a federal commission on school safety chaired by DeVos is prepared to recommend rolling back Obama-era guidelines aimed at reducing racial disparities in school discipline. These guidelines, first issued in 2014, urged schools to use alternatives to harsher discipline practices like suspensions and also warned districts they could be put on watch if racial minorities were disciplined at consistently higher rates than whites. But the Trump administration has highlighted these guidelines as a case of federal government overreach, and many conservatives, including Secretary DeVos, have said the guidance hamstrings local school officials and makes schools less safe. This political debate about these guidelines belies facts on the ground, however. For years now, long before these 2014 guidelines were issued, schools, especially in large urban areas, had been reforming their discipline practices because educators have recognized things like suspensions were having racially disproportionate impacts. So I asked the teachers here today, three educators, I should say, in large metro areas teaching mostly students of color. I mean, is the cat already out of the bag on this one? Are your schools going to change their discipline based on what Betsy DeVos recommends? What you said there just a second ago is is totally true in that we're looking at, I mean, my school in particular, are looking at more progressive forms of discipline instead of looking at just suspensions. Suspension doesn't really serve the student or, or the school, so we call it restorative justice. There's also other models. I know several other schools are, are doing that. So in, in some ways, it doesn't really matter. It seems like what, what DeVos and the Trump administration want to do is is mainly symbolic because a lot of schools are, are, have already changed their, their policies. I'm going to agree with Greg. I know our school is sort of doubling down on working with alternative practices. We're trained in trauma-informed care. We're going to have some additional training on conflict resolution, restorative practices for our classrooms, PBIS, positive behavior intervention and supports. The objective is to create students who can learn to modify their behavior so they're not put out of the classroom not put out of the school so they continue to be part of the educational process. Uh, Kevin, can I ask you specifically about Chicago? Because I know Chicago has been 
going in this direction for a while, even before these Obama guidelines. A study published earlier this year in the Peabody Journal of Education that's connected to Vanderbilt University showed that a small drop in suspensions for high-level offenses in CPS actually led to small increases in test scores and attendance for all students in uh, schools. This came after CPS began really reforming discipline practices as far back as 2008. Do you see that in your school? What what kind of discipline practices and alternatives, as Lynn put it, have, have you been putting into practice? Sure. As Greg mentioned, the, the popularity of restorative justice, instead of just immediately having kids suspended from high school, there's this attempt to mediate conflict. Uh, I think Lynn mentioned this as well, to have our students, you know, figure out what is causing the problem. Maybe if, if it's another student or a teacher, instead of being like, okay, you're going to be out of school for five to 10 days. And you hear a lot nowadays about the school to prison pipeline and this idea that ki- having kids out of school is not necessarily beneficial. Do they learn a lesson, you know, when they're at home for five or 10 days at a time versus like addressing, you know, the root cause of the issues they're having again with another student or a teacher? test scores dropping doesn't help as well. So there's been a lot less, I would say, suspensions at my school. You know, you have issues with a student and, you know, he may be out for a day or two. We have what's called ISS, that's in-school suspension, where they kind of keep them, I I don't want to say solitary confinement, but it's kind of, you know, out of the classroom, but then they're back in a day or two. And some teachers do feel like they're being undermined, that these students are so challenging, but it's, it's difficult. Right. So based on what I hear all three of you saying, you would see the, the reported recommendations that this federal commission chaired by Betsy DeVos is going to make as misguided. But I did, I did want to just address something that Greg brought up, the idea, I think, repeated by Betsy DeVos and I think mostly conservative commentators that these – the guidelines issued by the Obama administration that really put schools on watch about – potentially racially disproportionate effects in discipline, that those guidelines hamstrung educators, that they felt they could not levy appropriate discipline due to fears that they might be uh, charged with bias uh, or racism. And I, and I just wonder oh, your thoughts about that line of reasoning. Well, we know that 83 percent of all teachers, even in urban schools, are white teachers. And now in public schools, the majority of students are students of color. There is a, a gap between cultures that exist. And when we have kids that are possibly more kinesthetic in their learning capabilities compared to teachers who might be more audio or visual in their teaching, there there's a disconnect there. You just can't compare across the board that students are just going to sit there and wait for you to, to teach them. A lot of times it is, like Kevin said, relationship building. It is seeing uh, social emotional learning, like Greg said, it, it's more to just kicking kids out, but kids of color especially are, are disadvantaged when it comes to being kicked out of schools. Why? And be, I, I really think it's a cultural and a social disconnect, on my view. Kids might be louder. Kids might play video games. So when you're on your technology device, you might not be doing what the teachers ask mm. you to do. All these are small microaggressive offenses that oftentimes teachers blow out of proportion. Mm. And when they do that, then the kid responds back and not necessarily necessarily in kind. So as things escalate in the classroom, the teacher has the power to say, get up. The teacher has the power to write the conference card. The teacher now can tell the story. And the student is 
subject to whatever the teacher says. And you think there's a there's a racial angle to that story oftentimes? <laughs> not always. I think uh, sometimes. And it's not really a explicit racial angle. It just could be implicit. It could be that they don't know that they have that bias. They don't know they might have that bias toward boys or toward kids of color. Sometimes it's an implicit bias that teachers are unaware of. Yeah. Kevin, as a white male teaching in a, a school that is, as you said, mostly students of color, I wonder how you think about how you handle discipline and have you ever thought that um, this evolution in how we handle discipline that we've been talking about has, has hamstrung you, as some people have argued? I think a lot of what Lynn says is accurate in terms of implicit bias. I've had to sort of think about how I want to discipline a student, maybe an African-American or Hispanic student, when there is certainly cultural differences. I grew up in a house that was, you know, quiet and there was not a lot of yelling. But some students, they come from homes where there is a lot of yelling. There's a lot of profanity. And they t- I tell them, I said, I, can we can we really watch our language? I said that this is how they speak in their house. And it's okay. You know, I'm not saying I'm crazy about it. But at the same time, it's if you come up in, a, in an environment like that, it's kind of hard to all of a sudden, you know, for you have a student for 50 minutes a day to what am I looking for here? Kind of unwind uh, what they've grown up in, you know. So I do feel like implicit bias does exist. It's something I've tried to combat over the last few years. And this conversation goes back before Betsy DeVos goes back before Barack Obama. These, I mean, schools have been evolving their disciplines now for uh, you know years, mm-hmm. if not a decade or more. Why is that? Why do you in the schools that you teach in? Why have, why have your schools and your staffs felt it necessary to? to make that evolution and to uh, adopt what I guess we've called alternative or, you know, restorative practices as opposed to more harsh discipline practices. Honestly, for a charter school, it's, it's just, it's survival. Um, it's, it's necessary. I mean, we can't just kick everybody out. I mean, that goes against the mission of, of my particular charter school, which was meant to serve the needs of the Hispanic community where we had a, a horrendous dropout rate. And the whole idea of our school was to, to help with that. And we're not going to serve that mission if we are just suspending everybody or kicking students out. So in, in some ways, it, it, it goes against our, our very basic values if we're just excluding people that are supposed to be like the, the main part of our community, the main part of our focus. So in, in some ways, it, it's just a necessary thing for, for the survival of our school. Are you ever personally mindful, any of you, uh, of how you interact with and discipline students based on race? And also, how does your own race play into that? As I did mention, I, I do think about it when disciplining students. It's just it, you kind of need you kind of need to take like a time out almost yourself and just sort of slow down and try to figure out again why a student is acting a certain way. It's difficult though when you're in a class and you have 25, 30 other students there and everyone's looking at you and you're on stage and they're wondering, is this is this guy going to have a meltdown? You know, and I'm not to say it hasn't happened from time to time. But it's about, again, if you could just somehow find a way to slow things down in the classroom and maybe talking to the student one-on-one, because I found a lot of students let their guard down when you have them after class one-on-one. You know, there's not that need to be combative as much with you and sort of show off for their classmates. So it's one of the approaches I've taken in the past. As I taught in-school suspension was that I actually did talk to students about race. Like you were the moderator for the, for the, for the kids who were... In in school suspension, I was the in school suspension teacher for yeah. three years. Yeah. So, uh, so you have a lot of experience to offer then. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
again, I believe in providing students with, with facts and not fiction. They, quote unquote, feel some kind of way about things when teachers address them what they cons- uh, in a, what they consider a disrespectful manner. They think, the, they think the teachers are being disrespectful the tre- the to teacher, them. Correct. And what I try to explain to them is that the teachers are there for a job to help them learn new skills. But then I start bringing out facts. These are not new facts. These are things that have been in existence for about 10 years. Um, and I start talking with them about how students of color are looked at, what is expected. We start talking about the fact that code switching and what takes place in various environments. I was very honest with them about what it looked like for them to be young people of color in in in-school suspension and the personal harm that can do if they're labeled in that manner. Do you think they were aware of that before they had those conversations with you? No. They just believed, as all young people, that they were that they were right. Right. And, and they, they were being singled out by the teacher. And they were being singled out yeah. by the teacher. And they were being disrespected by the teacher. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Did you ever have any did you ever come to any conclusions that you did that for three years? Did you ever come to any any conclusions about um like patterns that you saw within your own school about why kids were being sent to, to ISS and and I guess what what you saw how your colleagues were handling it? One of the things they have is in restorative justice, you have got to triage with that teacher before going back into class. Yes, yeah, correct. And there's been an incident yeah. between a student and a teacher. Yes. You need to talk with a teacher. Yes. Mm-hmm. Does that work? Just yes. Cooper? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And what they, does that look like? Yeah. So if, if, a, if a student is sent out for some whatever misbehavior, before they are allowed back in, they have to talk. They have to conference with, with the teacher just to make sure that that relationship's okay. It's the, the idea that, like what Kevin was saying, the importance of the relationship. Um, and if a student misbehaves in a way that harms that relationship, that relationship needs to be restored, which is the essence of restorative justice. I mean, these alternatives to discipline – Despite what this federal commission may say, they haven't made their formal recommendation yet. But, I mean, these – the types of things you're talking about, restorative justice, triaging with teachers, um, looking for alternatives to ISS and, and out-of-school suspension, these practices are not going away. I mean, this is this is part of education now, I would imagine, it sounds like, from your experiences. Definitely. And, and in the inner city, I think, what I'm curious about is is what's it look like in the suburbs or where the majority – you have a, a white majority. Because I think in most of our schools, if I'm not mistaken, it sounds like um, we teach in, in – uh, a pretty diverse population or majority minority schools. One thing I did want to mention is I th- I would say a reservation I have when it comes to restorative justice and restorative practices. I think that it depends heavily on each child and it takes a lot of maturity for them to open up. It's going to take a lot of time as well because a lot of these kids and I'm sure um, both the places you guys teach at, a lot of them come from uh, trauma or neighborhoods where there's a lot of, you know, I don't, I don't want to say crime, but like a lot of uh, different issues. So for them to want to open up to teachers or to figures of discipline in the school takes a lot of time. And that's where I get back to the importance of relationship building. And you may not see a student change over a month or a semester or even over a year. But I do think it is the way to go because, again, the suspending them is, is again, the, the school to prison pipeline is such a big deal. And it doesn't do them any good to be out of school because then they're more likely to get into maybe even more serious trouble. But the importance of relationship building and the acceptance that it may take time is uh, is essential. Our podcast today is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation, learning together with families, educators, entrepreneurs, and innovators to develop quality education that prepares all of Kansas City's students for the future of learning and work. Join the conversation by visiting Kauffman.org or on Twitter at KauffmanFDN.
The diagnosis of attention hyperactivity disorder, or ADHD, has doubled over the past two decades. Currently, more than 6 million children in the U.S. between the ages of 2 and 17 have been diagnosed with ADHD. Nearly two-thirds of those are on some sort of medication. That all may sound alarming, but teachers and parents for a long time now have had the suspicion that ADHD is overdiagnosed. A growing body of research attests to this. The latest, a study published in the New England Journal of Medicine that finds what month a child is born can have an effect on whether that child gets diagnosed with ADHD. Specifically, children born in the month of August in some states have a much higher likelihood of being diagnosed with ADHD than children born just a month later in September. It's nothing to do with August itself, but with school policies that govern how and when kids can be enrolled in kindergarten. Tim Layton is an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School, and he helped co-author this new study. I talked with him about his research, and he began by telling me the very personal origins of why he wanted to look into this question of how ADHD was diagnosed in young children. Well, I guess speaking for many educators and parents, too, there's long been the suspicion that ADHD has been and is being overdiagnosed. You note in your research that the rate of ADHD diagnosis has more than doubled over the past two decades. So I wonder what made you want to start asking these questions about ADHD diagnosis? The process actually started with uh, my oldest son, whose birthday is in August. He was supposed to start kindergarten last year, and we had him signed up for class and ready to go. He was assigned to a teacher, and a few weeks before he was supposed to start, an economics research paper came out that looked at children in Florida and showed that children born in August had uh, just a bunch of, uh, on a bunch of outcomes, had a hard time relative to children born in September. We made the decision to pull the trigger and not send him um, and hold him back a year. And because of that, talking with people at work at lunch about our decision to do that, we started to think about, well, what things might we see in uh, health insurance claims data? What, what, What might we see in terms of clinical effects of the the kind of same phenomenon that these other researchers were looking at, the clinical effects of being young for your grade. And, you know, we immediately latched on to ADHD as something that we thought might be more likely to be diagnosed and treated for younger children in the same grade because of this possibility that normal behavior for young children might be interpreted as a symptom of ADHD. Yeah, I was going to ask how you came up with your methodology. It sounds sounds very personal. I mean, in your study, you compare rates of ADHD diagnosis in states with with a hard September 1st cutoff date for kindergarten enrollment with states that do not have that hard cutoff date. And you started to get into it a little bit, but what did you find? So what we found was that children born in August in states that have a September 1st cutoff are about 30% more likely to be diagnosed with and treated for ADHD than children born a few weeks later in September. And like you said, we did not find any difference in ADHD diagnosis and treatment between August and September-born kids in states that did not have that uh, September 1st cutoff. We were able to show that in the states that had that cutoff, there were no kind of biological differences between the August and September-born kids, that their parents looked identical in terms of the condition 
traditions that they had and that these kids did not differ at all in terms of uh, other conditions that we might not be ex- we might not expect to be influenced by their age relative to their peers. We're also able to show that this showed up as soon as they entered school, so the, there was no kind of difference prior to entering school, but it was definitely there by age seven. Um, and so, yeah, I guess the last thing that we showed was that there was there were in these states there was no difference between any other pair of months. So if you look at January versus February, February versus March, and so on, and the differences between month of birth and ADHD diagnosis and treatment, there's no difference for any of the other months. It was only in that August-September jump, and that really provided kind of what we thought was really strong evidence that this was due to these children being younger in their cohort relative to their peers. And I think a lot of teachers might intuitively understand why that's the case, but can you, can you put a little bit more of a point on it? Why is it that that August-September cutoff where you, in, in these classes in these states, are having kids who are, in essence, a year younger than some of their peers, why is that creating an overdiagnosis or a potentially misdiagnosis of ADHD? Yeah, so I was actually at a parent-teacher conference for my son, my, who's in kindergarten yesterday, and the teacher described it very well. And when she was talking about my son compared to you know children in the class who were were young, so my son started kindergarten when he had just turned six, and there are children in his class who started kindergarten when they had just turned five. So they were, doing what you would, they were doing what you had avoided doing. <laughs> right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And what she described was that in kindergarten, the difference in normal behavior between the kind of youngest children and oldest children in the class is quite large. So at that age, from what she described, the difference in normal behavior between over the course of a year is quite large. And so when a teacher, you're just observing the class and basically making the assumption that, you know, all the kids in the class are the same age, you might interpret differences in behavior as due to differences in uh, the prevalence of, you know, ADHD or some other behavioral condition among the kids rather than just to the clearer explanation, which is differences in age, which just might not be that easy to observe or to remember or something. Yeah, well, I was going to ask, what are what are the consequences for for overdiagnosis of ADHD uh, on a potentially broad scale? I mean, you, you started to say it's it's medication, it's um, how we treat in a, and, and, and talk to kids who have been diagnosed with ADHD. That's right. That's right. And I, I think, you know, if you put the, the medication aside, it may be the case that these younger children really benefit from additional the additional attention that an ADHD diagnosis gets them. And, you know, we can't say whether, whether they do or not, but you, you, it's plausible that they do. You could imagine um, that these younger children in the, in the class could really benefit from just getting some additional attention and some additional kind of uh, one-on-one time or, or types of things that you might expect children to, who, who have a diagnosis of a behavioral condition to get. But what our society, has, the direction our society has gone is, is for conditions like ADHD for one of the primary consequences and kind of the, the first order things that we do to deal with that is to put children on drugs. And that is where things start to get 
a little more concerning, um, where you know these these drugs have real impacts on children. And I think the the literature suggests that the the, the short term side effects are not uh, too extreme, though you know the, they they do um, induce kind of sleepiness and, and you know, they definitely change the behavioral uh, behavior of the child. But the, the more concerning thing is that we don't understand the long-term consequences of these drugs. And there's been speculation that some of these drugs may lead to long-term substance abuse problems. And that that is really concerning, especially if it's the case that you get prescribed these drugs just because you're born in August versus September. Yeah. Uh, you've done this research, I think, through the lens, fair to say, through the lens of a parent. I wonder, as a parent, what have you learned from this, and what do you think other parents should know based on what you've learned? Yeah, I think more more generally, just not not just our work, but a lot of other work out there by really good education economists has provided pretty convincing evidence at this point that children who are young for their grade really face an uphill battle in school. I think with respect to ADHD, parents should know that uh, if a teacher comes to them suggesting that their child has ADHD and their child has a summer birthday or a birthday close to the cutoff such that they are young for their grade, that they consider that fact when trying to figure out how they proceed, whether they go to a doctor or how they respond to the teacher. The same thing goes for physicians when a parent comes to you with reports of misbehavior for a child and suggests that maybe there there's an ADHD diagnosis there, uh, that the physician, that they pause if the child is young for their grade and take that into account. And conversely, do you have any recommendations for teachers or educators who often spend the most time with kids and are observing them and, and watching them and, and, and what they say and uh, the recommendations they make to parents and to physicians may very well be potentially very important factors in whether a kid gets diagnosed with ADHD. Yeah, I mean, mainly to be very cognizant of the how normal behavior differs within the age gradient of the classroom. So I was really impressed with my son's uh, kindergarten teacher yesterday who was very cognizant of this issue, not just because she knew I had written this paper, um, but <laughs> which helped. <laughs> but, yeah, but but was very cognizant of this issue, and you know spoke specifically to us about our son's interactions with another child who has who's very young, and how there there's even kind of struggles among the children to figure out how to interact with each other because they don't fully understand each other. But I was just very impressed with her. Uh, how how aware she was of the age gaps within the classroom, and I think like that that is something that teachers of young children really need to be aware of, especially when starting to think about recommendations in terms of diagnosis and treatment of behavioral condition. Uh, well, Tim Layton, assistant professor at Harvard Medical School, I really do uh, appreciate you sharing your time and your research. Well, thank you. I'm happy to happy to share and glad that people are interested. Oil and water, cats and dogs, charter schools and teacher unions. 
Well, that's been the conventional wisdom ever since charter schools made their debut in the early 90s, but some argue that seemingly antagonistic relationship is changing. The latest piece of evidence for that, Chicago. Teachers in the Acero Charter Network, it was once known as UNO, went on strike for four days this month, backed by the Chicago Teachers Union. And they won. They gained concessions from the network's administrators, including commitments for higher pay and smaller class size. Some commentators are making a direct link between this and the teacher labor actions this past spring in which public school teachers demanded and in some cases won concessions over things like pay and pensions from mostly conservative-led state legislatures. But is this true? Are we in a new kumbaya age between charter schools and traditional public schools and their unions who typically represent them? Wouldn't you know it, we have a charter school teacher and two traditional public school teachers here on this week to hash out this question. But first, I did want to get the view from Chicago. Kevin, um, I know we've communicated leading up to taping this. Uh, You teach in CPS, you teach at a traditional public school. Uh, You've told me that this has been a a topic of conversation among you and your colleagues at times. So what's been your take on the Acero situation? Well, it's, it was a lead story on all the newscasts here, as well as, uh, you know, the front page of the Chicago Tribune, because it was such a, a big step for charter school teachers to go to the picket lines, I should say. And it was just a recent merger, actually, with this shy axe. This is the Chicago Alliance of Charter School Teachers and Staff to align with the Chicago Teachers Union. My view of it as a CTU member is the idea is that strength in numbers, that if we have not all the charter schools, it's only about 25% of charter school teachers in Chicago are part of the union. But again, the more the merrier. It's more of a sign of strength. You mentioned some of the red state teacher uprisings we've had. I think this is just a sign of things to come in terms of teachers fighting back against austerity, pushing for more autonomy. I did find it very interesting that there was this sort of, you could say, political aspect of it, this sanctuary for undocumented students. Uh, that was an interesting element, but I'm not surprised as Acero caters mostly to Hispanic students. One of the demands that the striking teachers made was that their um, that the school put language into their their kind of mission statement or their charter that that protects students' document documentation status. Like basically, they cannot give away um, immigration documentation to authorities. So I mean, you clearly see this Acero victory, which again they're charter school teachers, but you see that I mean, you see it having broader implications for for teachers like you. I do, because our contract is up in June. So I do hope the charter schools are out there. If, God forbid, we go to on another strike, I hope they're out there with us too. As I mentioned to you, I've had to disassociate some of my feelings towards charter schools with the people who actually teach there and view them as educators also, that some of the issues I do have with charter schools, I have to realize that they are also teachers too. And they're, you know, most of them are benevolent as I am as well. So... Um, well, can you, you know. can you can you explain that more? And I know we we have Greg here, so <laughs> Greg is, yeah. is ready to respond. But um, can you explain more about what you mean by disassociating what you you have thought of charter schools, but all and the people who work in them? I'm, I'm interested to hear more about that. Sure, I I'm not a huge fan of the privatization of education. I know that. A lot of the charter schools in Chicago have opened up in heavy Hispanic, heavy African-American neighborhoods, and they're directly draining students from traditional neighborhood schools. So it's really put a strain on many of the Chicago public high schools. Um, It's kind of interesting, too, because in the heavily uh, neighborhoods that are predominantly white, a lot of the aldermen have fought charter expansion there to preserve the neighborhood schools in white neighborhoods. I mean, I was thinking back to the Arne Duncan comment he makes after Hurricane 
Katrina, that this was the best thing to happen to that city because now they could bring in more of the school choice and the privatization of education. And I just have a real difficult time viewing education as a commodity, you know, as something that, you know, people are talking about in boardrooms versus classrooms. That's my talking point, you know. But you, you say you see a difference b- between the, the organization of a charter school and the people who work for them. I, I do. I, I viewed or I view sometimes charter school teachers maybe as not qualified. Um, I feel like charter schools can hire them right out of college and they can pay them, you know, not a living wage. Uh, they can work them a lot longer hours than we are forced to work. I just have, again, a lot of concern because I know these are publicly funded, but there's very little oversight uh, and regulation. And that's that, that concerns me. Uh, Greg? the charter school teacher on our panel this week. And I, I will say, I mean, glad, I glad, glad I'm considered a teacher. <laughs> <Yeah>. Thanks, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, uh, I mean, uh, Kevin brings up a lot of things that are very specific to Chicago. Of course, mm-hmm. you teach in Kansas City, great. But I wonder, you've taught at the same charter school now for more than a decade. Charter schools in uh, charter school teachers in general, though not necessarily the case here in Kansas City, um, are paid less and get less on-the-job benefits than their traditional public school counterparts. Are you ready to strike? Right. <laughs> no, um, Wait, what's your experience been? Well, I've been incredibly lucky in the in the charter school I'm at, and I know this is not the case across the board, but we've been incredibly lucky that especially in the last five years, our board and our admin have been looking at staff retention as a critical issue and have put in place policies, like, for instance, the pay scale, making sure the pay scale aligns with the pay scale from neighboring school districts. Because the, the main thing is, again, the students are, are our focus. And the problem of just staff retention, for instance, I was just looking at some numbers. According to uh, publicsource.org, something like only 26% of teachers at charter schools have been working there 10 years or more, whereas that's about 70% in normal school districts, public school districts. So just staff retention is a huge issue, and that ends up affecting students and their academic and their academic achievement. So you you are a major outlier because you have yeah. been, you have been at this school. For yeah, a, and and again, it, it's just it's it's been kind of just luck of the draw. That like I said, that's not it, it, that's not across the board. It just it kind of just happened that the job I'm in just kind of fit me like a glove. But that I could see that doesn't work in in every in every case. And to Kevin's point, since I've been at at the charter school I'm at right now, I've seen several charter schools fold up because of mismanagement, because of lack of accountability, because they're cheating on attendance or whatever. So, I mean, I, I, I totally see that. So in some ways, like where I'm at, we're an outlier. We don't feel like we have to strike just yet because our admin's been doing a really good job, but I could see that at Acero and just kind of like applauding the teacher's efforts to fight for some of those things. And if anything, I think that'll serve to serve the kids better because if they're retaining staff and hopefully just the education, educational environment will improve. Do you, does something like the Acero strike, does it, does it create a a sense of solidarity between charter school teachers and teachers in traditional public schools? I mean, do you, do you feel, um, I mean, Kevin, you're in Chicago. Do you feel a greater sense of solidarity with with charter school teachers writ large now? Honestly, not yet. This merger just happened earlier this year. Our contract is up in June. If we, there is a strike, I do want to see charter school support. I just feel like if we're going to merge, and I, I do feel like there is strength in numbers, that they need to also uphold their end of the bargain. It's just very difficult because I see, I've seen a lot of CPS high schools lose students closed down because of the infiltration of charter schools. I wanted to mention, too, if you look at the history of Acero, they just were recently rebranded. They used to be Uno, as you mentioned. 
Their CEO and founder was a, name, a man named Juan Rangal, who was an ally of Rahm Emanuel. Well, this guy got in trouble for defrauding investors and uh, myriad scandals. So it's just whenever I see these char- – yeah, I see these charter schools and it's just like when are they going to fold? When's the corruption you know, going to come out? Now, I'm not saying all charter schools are bad. I'm glad to hear, Greg, you're happy at yours. But also the men- uh, mentioning that a lot of teachers do not stay at charter schools for a while. Yeah. Lynn, I haven't heard from you in this conversation yet. I'd like to get your thoughts. What are you thinking about? I guess I'll ask you, why isn't there more of a sense of kinship professionally between charter school teachers and traditional public school teachers? Kansas City has had charter schools for a while. So I yeah. think that they've been able to develop a different kinship. But I'm at a district where they're talking about putting a charter school in. Doesn't in have the one next, currently. Does not have one currently, mm-hmm. but they're, they're they're discussing putting one in within the next year or two. And How do you the, all feel about that? It's a very negative feeling simply because uh, we believe charter schools come in and take the best kids, and then they remove the kids that they really don't like around October to November. Mm-hmm. And uh, they start putting kids back in the public school system who might not fit their mold or model that they're looking for. And so it's a distrust uh, between the regular school district and a lot of charter schools when they start. I don't devalue the teachers in charter schools. I think that they are teachers or educators uh, just as I am. My, my biggest concern is that charter schools, to me, are experimenting in urban school districts with children of color, and no one is checking them on that. Yeah. So as long as our kids are looked at as experiments, we really don't use best practices in how we can provide a good educational experience. Well, great. Thanks for that, that conversation. Kevin, any final thoughts just about where you all stand, um, you know, now that the Acero strike is over and, and you guys are seemingly moving on or trying to move on? Sure. I, I just really wanted to echo what uh, Eric Hines, the California Teacher Association president, basically emphasizes the importance of more regulation uh, and oversight with these charter schools. I don't like the, I, I don't want to say, but sort of the freewheeling capitalistic view I have of them. That is just, it's profit. Well, thanks for that conversation. We will move on. And before we get to kids these days, let's tell you some other education stories that caught our eye recently. It's time for the headlines. NPR investigation, the U.S. Department of Education said it would erase the debts of thousands of teachers who had grants they received from the federal government converted into high-interest loans. The TEACH grants paid for college or graduate school for teachers who committed to teach at least four years in hard-to-staff schools, but an NPR report showed a host of problems, including obscure paperwork requirements and missed deadlines, had converted these grants into loans. In some cases, teachers were saddled with nearly $25,000 in debt. A suburban Cincinnati school district issued a revised dress code for an upcoming school holiday concert after a teacher issued guidelines for the event telling students not to have, quote, mohawks, large afros, and other outlandish hairstyles, end quote. The letter also encouraged boys to get barber attention and girls to visit the cosmetologist before the concert. Many parents complained that these guidelines unfairly targeted African-American students. The teacher, uh, who is black for what it's worth, also apologized and reissued those guidelines without as strict requirements on the hairstyles. 
and Broward County Public Schools near Miami, the sixth largest public school district in the, in the nation, actually just mentioned it in a previous segment. They face more than 100 lawsuits related to the mass shooting earlier this year at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. Students who survived the shooting, as well as families of students who were killed, have sued the district, many alleging in some form that the district was negligent in its efforts to protect students. Ed Week estimates just responding to all the suits is likely to cost the district millions of dollars. Coming up, Kids These Days, but first, this episode of No Wrong Answers is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation. No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control and what our teachers say are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. Like us at Facebook, follow us on Twitter, just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency, find us at Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts, once you do, subscribe and leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours, giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed the conversation you've heard in this episode, then subscribe, leave us a review, and keep the conversation going. Just a reminder, you can sign up for our weekly newsletter, The Friday Cheat Sheet, at NoWrongAnswersPodcast.com. The Friday Cheat Sheet gives you a preview of what we'll be talking about on the next episode and gives you a chance to weigh in as well. Also, a review of some of the interesting education stories that caught our eye during the week. It's your teacherly take on the world in your inbox. Sign up for the Friday Cheat Sheet at NoWrongAnswers.com. Now, kids these days, Greg, you had one last week. So yeah. You had to, oh, yeah. Up, you had to come up with a new one. What yeah. are your kids into? Well, we were, ta- we were we've been talking about with the coming holidays uh, what students and their families have for holiday meals. Because, again, um, most of the students being Hispanic, I wondered how many of them actually cook a turkey or have ham, something traditional like like that. Um, and a lot of students said, no, of course not. We, they, they do like the traditional tamales. Um, some said, yeah, we do turkeys and, and some ham. Um, some said they do both because they have a large family, so you get a little bit of both. One student, one little Hispanic girl, just looked up and, and when I asked the question said, we smoke a brisket. <laughs> and I was like, that's the most Kansas City answer ever. That's, that is awesome. I want to be in her well family. Well done. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right, Lynn, what are your kids into? So last time I was here, we were uh, planning a sock hop right, uh, yeah. to help with the homeless, nice. uh, provide socks. <clears throat> we converted that to a Halloween party. <laughs> and so <laughs> we spent the last two weeks collecting socks. And I just want to say our kids collected over 750 pairs of socks to uh, children's, women's, and men's to uh, to give to a couple of homeless shelters. So I'm really proud of their ability to give during this holiday season. And we should say uh, homeless shelters do not accept used socks. I mean, that's why you have to get you have to get new socks. Brand new package, yeah, that's, unused. That's why you have to have drives for things like that because they do not accept you. I mean, and they shouldn't accept <laughs> right. used socks, but <laughs> to be clear. Uh, well, congratulations to your school for that. Thank uh, you. Thank you for that work. And uh, Kevin in Chicago, what are your kids into? Sure. So I actually had a student teacher for much of this first semester, and it was just very nice to kind of see how this uh, how this young woman who just graduated yesterday from Illinois State University, you know, developed this rapport with my students. And last week was the first week she was gone, so I was back in the saddle. And how many times they referenced her and how much they missed her. And it, you know, it was just kind of interesting, too, because I was thinking about she's actually closer in age to the students than I am. Um, you know, or that actually she's a lot closer to age to the students than I'm closer to her age. So, you know, they were taking selfies and stuff on her last day and we had a big pizza party. Um, but it's, it's just a relationship building and it was, it was emotional when she left. So, 
you know, it was it was a very positive experience. You got big shoes to feel to fill. Sounds like <laughs> I do. I, I I really do. And then Greg, the tamales thing is awesome. I love how the students have those for holiday dinner. Oh, they yeah. do in Chicago. I, I would I would take that too. Yeah, I would take tamales <laughs> for for Christmas. So, so would I. So would I. Uh, all right. Well, Kevin Vanderport in Chicago, Lynn Shipley and Greg Brenner here in Kansas City. Thank you for uh, coming on. No wrong answers this week. Thanks, as always, to Matt Hodap, who produces the podcast. Thank you to KCUR 89.3 Kansas City Public Radio, where we tape. Remember, go to our website, nowronganswerspodcast.com and sign up for our Friday Cheat Sheet newsletter. We're going to take a couple weeks off around the Christmas break and be back in early January. Until then, take a break, kids. And remember, when you come back, be nice to your teachers. 